Hello, Husky fans. This is Max Cerullo, and you are listening to Yes, UConn, the podcast where we dive deep into the greatest UConn basketball games of all time. We've got a great episode today. Today, we'll be breaking down the 2004 National Semifinal, the epic rematch between UConn and Duke in the Final Four. Teams had recently met in the 1999 National Championship game, and even though this one wasn't for the title, the stakes couldn't have been much higher. So joining me today is Matt Burke. He covered this UConn team for the Daily Campus. So uh, Matt, just to start things off, uh, could you tell us a little bit about your experience and uh, what it was like to be there for uh, what I think most would agree was one of the most important games in UConn history? Yeah, so I, I, I went to UConn from 2001 to 2005. And like most alumni, I've been a huge fan ever since. I lived in San Diego for a couple of years after the graduate and that coincided with UConn's first round loss to the University of San Diego in 2008. And I watched that at a bar with a bunch of USD grads and friends. So that was my low point as a UConn fan. But I moved back to New England in 2009. And so I was back home for the 2009 run to the Final Four, 2011 and 2014. And now I'm just pumped to be them returning to the Big East next year. But going back to 04, that was just a really fun time to be on campus. Uh, both the men and the women were preseason number one in the two, fall of 2003. And there was that dual Sports Illustrated cover with a Mecca and Diana Taurasi showing that uh, both were preseason number one. And it was just a great time during the school's history. The football program was just starting at Rensselaer. The tailgate scene was pretty legit, and they were uh, banging that place out pretty consistently. And that fall, the fall of 03, was just insane. You had the height of the Red Sox-Yankees rivalry, and you know uh, UConn is the epicenter of that rivalry. And the student population was split 50-50, and that was when Pedro was throwing down Zimmer and the Aaron Boone home run. And the football program was getting rolling, Red Sox-Yankees thing, then all of a sudden the men's and women's basketball programs were both expecting, not hoping, expecting to be national champions that year. So it was just a really fun time to be on campus. There was just a lot of excitement uh, across the board. Man, you know what? I I went to UConn at a pretty awesome time, and you just made me super jealous because, like, the, the Red Sox angle, just the whole, you know, UConn, uh, Boston, New York dynamic, um, I mean, that, that just must have been a crazy time. Uh, so with this team in particular, though, like you, I think you said, they were the preseason number one team. They expected to win it all. And this game, I mean, Duke, as we in hindsight, we know the final wound up being kind of anticlimactic with Georgia Tech. So this was really like the big game. And I have to be honest, I so I didn't see this game live. Uh, I was a, in a freshman in high school. Actually, I might have even still been in eighth grade at the time. So this was kind of before I was in the UConn family. And I remember just like when I watched the replay for the first time and I see they're down by seven points with like, what, three and a half minutes or less to play. And I'm thinking, how, how on earth did they win this game? <laughs> like it, it kind of was like if I didn't know they won, I would have been like, oh, geez, they're they're in trouble. And then, you know, they obviously they pull it off with the big run at the end. Um, so just what was it like to be in the uh, Alamo Dome that day just to experience just the run and just what kind of how it all played out? It was, it was amazing. I was uh, right behind the Duke bench repping the Daily Campus, and uh, this is back when the NCAA respected journalists and actually gave them prime pass locations, uh, although I shouldn't say that because the pro leagues are actually worse now. But anyway, right behind Coach K, got to witness a good three hours of whining and crying from one of the all-time greats. 
that year, UConn was 32-6, and six, uh, two seed in the West, preseason number one. They didn't really live up to expectations that year, uh, in the regular season at least. They should have been a one seed if they had played up to potential in the regular season. Uh, and this game, yeah, this game was pretty scary for fans because there were sizable deficits in the first and second half and all year long. But all year long, you can kind of have the feeling that this team, that they would pull out big games. They always rose to the challenge when they were facing similarly talented teams. Like, they were a different team in the Big East tournament that year uh, than they were in the regular season. They just really liked the big stage. They didn't necessarily like the 12 p.m. Saturday games in Hartford, where it was a glorified morgue on those noon starts. And the student section was hungover, and a good chunk of the rest of the crowd showed up late. Uh, in fact, the game where Ryan Gomes was on Providence uh, when he went off, the one that inspired Calhoun's epic rant where he drops the F-bomb about 83 times in two minutes. So this team didn't really show up to those games, but a big-time atmosphere, man, they showed up. And they showed up against Pitt a few weeks earlier, MSG, in, in the biggest title game. And they certainly showed up against Duke here. Matt, were you in the press uh, the uh, press conference for the Ryan Gomes rant? I was. Jeez. Highlight of my career. <laughs> I can imagine that was a that was a, a highlight for sure. Um, yeah, just to kind of go back a little bit, you mentioned you mentioned how they didn't really totally live up to their potential. To be fair, um, America Okafor had been dealing with injury for a decent portion of that season too, wasn't he? Yes. Yeah, so, I mean, it felt like watching this game, there was sort of like, you know, this whole dynamic where, so uh, Okafor missed almost the entire first half due to foul trouble. And, uh, you know, he was, you know, kind of in and out of the lineup a little bit in the second half, too, when he got his third foul. Uh, This game was really, really tightly called. Um, a ton of people on both teams wound up in foul trouble. Uh, We're kind of looking through it now, just in the the final box score. It looks like Duke had, uh, uh, they had three guys foul out. They had another two guys on top of that had three fouls. Uh, UConn had um, no nobody from UConn fouled out, but they had uh, four of the five starters had at least three fouls. Uh, you know, Gordon and uh, Rashad Anderson both had four. Okafor was you know sitting out for a long stretch of the game. It was just a really, really just a kind of a a, a bit of a tractor pull to use uh, Mike Anthony's uh, quote from the UConn Butler game. Just you know, not much of a flow. But whenever the starting lineup was out there, UConn completely dominated. And it wasn't really until the very the very beginning and the very end is really the only time we actually saw that lineup and they kind of proved who they really were. Yeah, it was definitely a clunky game overall. Uh, when Okafor got that second foul within the first four minutes of the game, you could just feel the air come out of the place. And you knew from uh, watching UConn all year that that was, that was the last we'd see of them in the first half. Calhoun actually lied. He said afterwards, I don't know if it's true, because Calhoun is prone to hyperbole sometimes, but uh, he said that he actually lied to Okafor on the bench and said that he put him back into the, the game in the first half, and that obviously never happened. Well, maybe it's for the best, because uh, Coach K did put Sheldon Williams back in in the first half when he had two fouls. He gets called for a third. Eventually, he fouls out. Shav Randolph, kind of the same thing. Uh, you know, He ends up fouling out late, too. So in those crunch time minutes when Duke is kind of hanging on for dear life, you have Horvath is trying to match up against Okafor. That's That should never have happened. I can't believe that Coach K allowed that scenario to play out. And obviously, you know, Okafor just dominated in the last couple of minutes and UConn was able to pull off the win. 
Um, what what was it like just in the aftermath? So when they win the game, I mean, this is they still have Georgia Tech coming up, and um, they had lost to Georgia Tech earlier in the season. So at that point, were you thinking, wow, okay, they're definitely going to win it all, or was it still like, all right, well, you know, they still got one more to go? Or how how is it kind of the the uh, tone around the team at that point, as far as you could tell? Uh, to be honest, it actually, it was kind of felt. It felt like Monday night was going to be a coronation. I mean, they did lose to Georgia Tech earlier in the year, but like I said earlier, they hadn't been playing up to their expectations at certain points during the year. And off the heels of that Piggies run, and off the heels of the tournament run where they just blew teams out uh, before the Duke game. You just had a feeling that it was going to be more of a coronation than anything. Yeah, I can. I think that feels about right. Um, so just to kind of go through the, the tournament. So uh, UConn and Duke had come into the season as the preseason one and two teams. Uh, in the tournament, neither faced a particularly difficult road. Uh, UConn starts against the 15 seeded Vermont. They beat them 70 to 53. They faced number seven seeded DePaul. They win 72 to 55. Sweet 16, they got number six Vanderbilt. Um, they win that game by 20, 73, uh, 53. And then in the uh, regional final, they um, they got Alabama, the eight seed, uh, 87-71 win. So they, they pretty much avoided all the top teams in their bracket. Duke, kind of the same deal. They uh, were the one seed. They faced Alabama State and beat them 96-61. Uh, number eight seed, Seton Hall, 90-62. Number five seed, Illinois, 72-62. So a little bit of a closer game. Then they get Xavier, uh, future UConn conference rival in the Big East, um, they uh, pull out a close 66 to 63 win. So they got a, they had some actual tests for Duke did, but still kind of a, an interesting dynamic. Whereas usually by this point you're kind of battle tested, and that wasn't really the case, was it? No, not really. I, I mean, I think nationally people kind of wondered what would happen when UConn faced real competition. I mean, that was the narrative at least. But anybody who watched them during the Big, the Big East was just stacked during those days. And they played those grinded-out games with uh, Pitt, I, I believe. I can't remember if Howland was still the coach or whether that was Jamie Dixon at that point. But those were just, like, knockdown, down drag-out affairs. And at, when they were able to beat Pitt in the Big East uh, championship game, it kind of felt like they could win any sort of uh, grinded-out game like that. Yeah, no, absolutely. So um, let's kind of get into the game and sort of kind of see how it plays out. So uh, interesting starting lineups for both of these teams kind of in retrospect. So with Duke, you have Chris Duhon, Luol Deng, J.J. Redick, Daniel Ewing, and Sheldon Williams. Obviously, Luol Deng and J.J. Redick both went on to have pretty long and successful NBA careers. For UConn, you got Talik Brown, Ben Gordon, Rashad Anderson, Josh Boone, Emeka Okafor. Uh, you know, a lot of NBA talent on this team, too. And uh, at the beginning, it's like I mentioned, UConn really took it to uh, Duke for the first kind of, uh, we'll say, the first five or six minutes. Uh, take a 5 nothing lead right out of the gate before uh, Duke. I think it took uh, Duke like four, four, almost like three minutes to score a point. And um, but then trouble began with uh, the 16 minute mark. Ogafor gets called for two fouls in like no time at all. And the second foul was really soft. Like he, he goes up straight up. Um, guy, uh, dude drives right into him and, uh, kind of that's, that's changed the whole game. I mean, if Okafor doesn't come out there, I mean, it, at the time UConn was only up, uh, seven to four after the free throw, um, they ended up going on an eight to one run right after, but then Duke really sort of kind of changed the game and took it to him. If you figure if, if Okafor stays in, it's possible Duke doesn't even really make a game of this at all. But what do you, what, what do you think of just, uh, kind of that, the start? 
mentioned it before, it just took the air out of the building when Okafor hit that second foul. But one thing, looking back on this game, is I just forgot how crucial Strong was given this run. He was a he was only a freshman at that point, um, and he, had, he ended up with 14 rebounds in this game. Offensive board right off the bat in the first possession. Um, and another thing I noticed right off the bat here, uh, I forgot it. Uh, not really of huge significance, but I forgot that Boone had actually used to do the tip-off. Uh, we always, we always kind of tend to pencil in these traditional NBA center types as being seven foot tall. Well, Okafor was actually six ten. He was built, he was built like a man, but he was only six ten. Boone was six ten. Two extra inches mean a lot when it comes to basketball, and it, it maybe a small part of the reason why Mecca didn't exactly dominate in the NBA the way a lot of people thought he would. Yeah, no, Okafor was, uh, he was terrific. I mean, he, it, it's, it's unfortunate that he didn't work out a little bit better in the pros, but for this, uh, for his role on this team, I mean, it, it's, he was smooth. Like, you know, he had the power game, like you said, but like what struck me the most is that he had a good shooting touch as well. And, you know, especially you saw it later, especially, but I mean, whenever he was on the floor, you know, he was a threat to just kind of go up and over whoever he needed to. He didn't need to dunk on people all to, to get his points. You know, he had his, he had his offense, he got the rebounds um, and not having him really hurt. Cause so, so basically the way it kind of played out was Okafor, he gets called for the second foul about the 1605 mark. And then, um, you know, basically UConn goes on an 8 to nothing run. Uh, Charlie Villanueva was huge in this stretch. He had a, a three. He hits a runner on a nice, uh, you know, cross-court feed. And then uh, at this point, Duke is only 1 for 12 to start. UConn's uh, 5 for 11. Um, and then, yeah, then Duke starts to make their run. They end up going on a 15 to 1 run to uh, take the lead. Uh, Randolph has a couple of baskets uh, to, to kind of put him in front. Um you know, Josh Boone gets a, a two eventually to kind of break like a four plus minute drought, but it kind of keeps on the fire keeps on burning and eventually Duke start to pull ahead. Um, I don't really quite know what went went wrong here because with Okafor off the court, they still played well. I, I, you figure Duke was eventually going to start to make a run, but it was a little bit alarming to see just how quickly it turned like, you know, from just being like, oh, wow, UConn's going to run, run away with this, to being like, oh, no, now Duke might run away with this. Yeah, I mean, that Duke team was stacked, too. I mean, people people talk about how many NBA players that, uh, that UConn had on this team, but Duke, Duke was uh, deep as well, and J.J. Redick was just coming into his own, so they were, they were uh, no easy out. No, no, for sure. Uh, Sheldon Williams, he gets called for the second foul right around the, eight, the uh, under eight mark. And that was a uh, that proved to be pretty big because he has to come out now. Um, you know, Shav Randolph is having his own troubles. He he's you know killing UConn on, on offensively, but he just can't stay on the court. And uh, by the time the half is over, both of them have three fouls. Um, you know, U- UConn is kind of at the end of the half. They make a, a bit of a run to keep it respectable. Um, Villanueva has another basket. Uh, Denim Brown hits a three. Ben Gordon, who I, I remember watching this game and being like, man, Ben Gordon should be the best player on the court. It doesn't really feel like it. And at the end of the game, you look at the box score and he's actually, you know, 18 points or whatever it was. Um, so UConn ends up going into halftime trailing 41 to 34. Um, and it feels like they may be kind of lucky that to be that close, but also like, well, you know, Okafor is going to come back. Um, at halftime, when you were when you were there, what was uh how how were you feeling at that point? Well, I mean, there was a deficit, but you kind of knew uh, when Mecca was inserted back into the game, and by all accounts, 
rest of the way. It didn't matter if he fouled out within the next uh, five minutes of the game. He was going to play the, the entire second half, and uh, they were just going to pound the ball down low to him to see how many points he could get. And defensively, they definitely missed him, too. Uh, he led a nation in blocks that year. He was just a force uh, on the defensive end, so they definitely missed him. But it was kind of like you kind of knew Emeka was going to be uh, the, the guy to put on the cape and come to the rescue. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, let's before we kind of jump into the second half, I do want to talk about Josh Boone, who we briefly kind of touched on too. So he's a freshman. He, he's just a I thought was tremendous in this game. Uh, he ends up with uh, I think you said was a, either thirteen or fourteen rebounds. I think um, fourteen it was. Yeah, nine points. He only only two fouls. He's the the fewest of the of the starters. Uh, surprisingly, only one block, but it felt like a lot more than that. Um, you know, and obviously, you know, Boone was, I would say he's got to be one of the most underrated players in UConn history because he, he's a huge part of the 2006 team and, you know, was, you know, obviously ends up briefly playing in the NBA too. Um, you know, just watching this game, I mean, that kid was terrific. Uh, he, and he was really, really impactful in this game too. Yeah. I mean, he's definitely one of the, those forgotten guys. Um, I, I mean, this was his freshman year and for him to play this way, I, I mean, the first play of the game. Get an offensive board, and that kind of set the tone for for where things were headed the rest of the way. And like I said before, him him uh, filling in those minutes for when Mecca was on the bench, it was it was amazing. Yeah, he ends up playing thirty five minutes, uh, so he hardly came off the uh, the court. Five offensive rebounds. Um, you know, I, defense was was okay. He he did get beat uh, more than I think he would have preferred, but you know, all things considered, I mean. It's, it's funny, like, you know, you see, what is he, 6'11", or something like that? Like, that's that's the kind of thing, like, I can't wait for UConn to start getting guys like Josh Boone, like, just, like, on, like, all the time again, and just have it be like, oh, yeah, he's, like, the third or fourth best big man we have, and you're just like, that guy is? Seriously? Like, that was, uh, that team was stacked, like, just unbelievable, and, like, just looking at Josh Boone is kind of the perfect example of, like, he's not even really the guy you think about. You look to uh, Okafor and Gordon first, and then... Yeah, just, I mean, Villanueva, he was a less of a player on this team, but he obviously had a more impactful NBA career. You know, Hilton Armstrong wasn't really much yet either, but this that, that team had so many bigs. Like, it was crazy. Yeah, I mean, going into that year, uh, 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 excuse me, uh, Hilton Armstrong and, uh, and Boone were kind of afterthoughts. Like, the big buzz was around uh, Villanueva. And Villanueva had a really nice year, too, as a freshman, but Boone just came out of nowhere. And he kind of he kind of grabbed that mantle as uh, the top freshman, and Calhoun absolutely loved him that whole year just because of the stuff he did in this game. Just uh, had a really no- nose for the ball. He didn't exactly have to score twelve points a game, but he always had the rebound when it mattered. Uh, he, he called the timeout late in this game. I don't think it was the the smartest timeout in the world because it was UConn's last timeout, and that was probably a call from Calhoun too. But he, he was just everywhere when you when you needed him. So uh, second half begins, and uh, the first uh, few minutes are a little bit rough for both teams. Um, you eventually, you, UConn, I think with about uh, 16 minutes to play, there's a point where UConn is now up to 14 turnovers as a team, uh, which is obviously a huge part of why they're trailing by this much. They only finish with four the rest of the way. They really clean things up. And um, so uh, in terms of fouls, Shav Randolph gets called for his fourth like right away. 
So now, you know, we're, we're, we're in, Duke is kind of really risking it here where, you know, eventually, you know, he and they need Randolph and they need Williams to stay in the game if they have any chance of containing Okafor. So now he's, you know, he's in big trouble now. Um, uh, Yukon makes a, makes a push here. Uh, ben Gordon uh, helps key a five to nothing run. And uh, then Okafor gets called for his third. So he ends up having to leave for like another couple of minutes. Duke, uh, they, they pull ahead 46 to 39. Uh, UConn keeps their run going. Rashad Anderson for three. Now it's an eight to one run. Then here we go. Sheldon Williams calls for his fourth foul, 15, 22 to play. Uh, so we're so around this time. Okafor comes back. He's going to eventually finish with 17 points in the last uh, 15 minutes. Um, so, but the next, like almost the rest of the game, Duke did a great job of kind of keeping the lead. You know, every time Okafor, you know, he hits a two, um, you know, Randolph hits a two. Okafor rebound and dunk. Ewing for two. Okafor hits Gordon for a great runner, and then Ewing gets draws a foul two for two. So it's just like on and on it goes. Like it stayed like a six point game for just uh, for the longest time. It felt like did you did you get a sense that Duke just like what what do you think Duke was doing that really let them kind of kind of keep UConn at bay for as long as they did? Yeah, we we, we knew they weren't going away. I think there was a play uh, with nine twenty eight left in the, the second half where Okafor blocks Dang. And that's when you kind of knew it was, it was going to be like this classic down the stretch. It kept UConn within three, but it was kind of like the start of when, you know, Emeka's in the zone here on both ends of the floor. Uh, he came right down after that, hit a turnaround jumper over uh, Randolph to bring them within one. That was an 8-0 run, but you kind of knew Duke wasn't going away by any means. Yeah, that was sort of, I have that as maybe one of the most... Uh most uh, exciting uh, rewatches of the game because it was uh, JJ Redick had just hit a three that put him ahead by nine. And then, yeah, then UConn kind of just sort of makes their big push. You know, Gordon has a, a two, he draws a foul, gets, gets two free throws. Denim Brown gets a basket. And then, yeah, Okafor had that awesome block and then the, uh, the turnaround shot the other way. Um, but yeah, like you said, you know, Duke, they, they, they kind of came back and then the two teams traded baskets for, uh, the next three or four minutes. And then Duke had its own run. And it looked like at the time, this might be the, the killer. Uh, they go on a seven. Uh, it was a seven to nothing run at first. It draws a timeout by UConn with 515 to play. And then, uh, yeah, Ewing had a three. It made it uh, 73 to 64, 438 to play. It's a 10 to two run. And um, it, it would be like another couple of minutes. Eventually you get the situation where it's 75 to 67, three, three minutes and 28 seconds to play. Duke did not score another point until literally the the buzzer, and but at this point you're thinking, what are we doing here? This is we're running out of time. This is this is a trouble. What what's what's going on here? Yeah, definitely turning point was around uh, five minutes left when Calhoun called that timeout, and you just knew, and they went through it right away. They started pounding Okafor again. They started to get away from that a little bit offensively. And right away, that's when they got uh, Sheldon Williams to follow. And it was just, it was just great coaching by Calhoun. He, he really uh, ate Krzyzewski's lunch down the stretch here. And Calhoun was always known as just the, the fiery type of coach, a great uh, motivator, big personality. But he was still, he was still pretty good with the X's and O's here. Yeah, I mean, tactically too, just managing Okafor the way he did. Uh, I don't. I, I would have to think Coach K must look back at this as one of his uh, low points as a coach because, like, d- they should have won this game just the way it played out. Like, 
you know, you lose Sheldon Williams is uh, right around the five minute mark. And then Shav Randolph, he fouls out right after they pull ahead by seven. And then that's really when UConn is just like, they, they have all their starters back now because Calhoun's like, all right, you know what? We're this winning or losing time. If I don't, we don't make a run now is not going to matter if they foul out or not. And um, then the, the team rewards him by executing. You got Richard Anderson for three, makes it a five point game. Ewing misses a mid-range jump shot. Not a great look for him. Gordon draws a foul, hits both. He Gordon was really the only one who was hitting his free throws. He he I think uh he he was he was great in that respect. Three point game, two oh seven to play. Duke turns it over, minute and a half left, Okafor for two, one point game. And then uh the big one, Luol Deng pulls up for three with forty four seconds left. And if he makes it, Duke Duke probably wins, but that one rims out and then it's the the the, the most important play of the game. Okafor goes for a basket and misses. Josh Boone, who we just talked about, tips it back to him. Okafor takes it away from Deng and goes and just put, puts up the shot and uh that puts him ahead for good. 76-75. Duke has to call timeout. I, I can't even imagine what it must have been like to watch this play out, especially just to be in courtside like you were and just to be like in a matter matter of minutes, being like, "Oh man, we're in trouble." To just being like, "I can't believe what I'm watching here." Yeah, I mean that that obviously was the key play of the game when Boone tipped it to Okafor and Okafor had the putback. But like you were saying, uh, this is definitely one of Coach K's biggest regrets. Just the shot selection down the stretch was uh, it was pathetic, and in the last play of the game, which we'll get to in a few seconds, in a few minutes, I'm sure, just with 12 seconds left, it's it's blatantly. J.J. Redick just looking to be bailed up by the officials. And it, the officials just aren't going to call that at that point. And Coach K is an all-time great, but this was not his finest performance. And I definitely made it a point uh, to go to his press conference afterward to kind of see the wine fest that was going to go on, and we definitely got that. I think somebody asked him uh, if he felt that his team collapsed on the stretch, and he said something like, well, obviously you didn't see the game tonight. So it was just it was just classic stuff. He was he was frustrated by the way uh, I'm sure he coached and by the way his team performed, but it was it was not his finest hour. The yeah the, the final uh, couple of possessions by Duke especially it kind of reminded me of the end of the '99 championship game, particularly this next play. So um, with about 11 seconds left, um, or actually sorry, with 21 seconds left. Duke has a chance to take the lead. They have the ball. They they call timeout. They set it all up. And J.J. Redick just basically drives to the hoop into a whole sea of UConn defenders and turns it over. And, uh, you know, UConn draws the foul almost immediately, and Rashad Anderson goes to the line. And it's like, he's this guy is one of the greatest shooters in college basketball history. How is that the play? you gotta got to have Redick just run off some screen, hit, hit it to him, and let him just shoot like... Is he, is, are you really going to try to drive against the entire UConn bigs? And, you know, of course, we're talking about some of the best bigs in the country. What, what, how, how can that be the final play? I can't believe that that's just what they settled for. Exactly. And there was, there was kind of this train of thought at the time that J.J. Redick was kind of overrated. Uh, but he definitely showed up in this game. He was only a sophomore at this point. He hit, I think, three threes in this game. But, yeah, you're right, driving to the basket like that when you have Okafor roaming the middle, when you have Boone on the court. I mean, if Duke wanted to place any blame on the loss, it should have gone to uh, Coach K and uh, even Sheldon Williams. He fouled out, but I think he ended up one for nine or something like that, four points. Uh, I mean, Redick was tough. He broke all the free throw records at Duke. He's still in the NBA today. All-time shooter and probably 
second to Christian Waitner in terms of all-time hated Dukies. But, uh, I mean, you can't have them doing that in that situation. I think J.J. Redick has actually aged really well. Because I remember in college, the consensus with that guy was basically that he was kind of a kind of a pretty boy honestly you know he hits all these threes he's a great shooter everybody loves him he's the media darling you know I expected when he went to the pros that he would get exposed and the funny thing is that's not actually what happened he it turned out he was a lot tougher than a lot of people gave him credit his first couple of years in the league weren't very good but you know he's still a productive player to this day um you know, so I, you know, I gotta give JJ props at least for that. But in this game, yeah, it wasn't his best. He he didn't come through in the the times they needed him, and Coach K kind of failed him too, especially at the end. Um, so anyway, if, after that happens, uh, Anderson makes the two free throws, 78-75, 11 seconds left, and then Reddick gets one look at a three. It wasn't really a great great look, but at that point, you know, you, you're you're running out of time, so he he misses, and then um, it's. One of the most alar- one of the most uh, alarming and nerve wracking three free throw situation where Okafor misses the first, and uh, you know as it turned out, it's a good thing he makes the second because that seals it. Um, Duhan actually hits the three at the buzzer, but you know at that point it's a four point game, so it doesn't matter. So seventy nine seventy eight is your final. Um, geez, I, <laughs> I, I watching that game live. If I see Okafor miss that first one, I'm just like, oh no, <laughs> what. What are, we, what are we doing here? So, I don't know, geez, what, what, what did you think at that point? Yeah, I mean, Okafor was never a great free throw shooter, even in his NBA career. He, his, those numbers never really went up. So after he missed the first one, I was like, uh-oh. But, uh, but he did, you could see, after he made that, that second one, you could just see the relief come up. I think that's mostly what it was, relief, when he hit it. I mean, he was a big-time player, but definitely, like, at that moment, even he must have just been like, Oh geez, are we? Is it really gonna come down to a free throw? Like, <laughs> not not great. Um, yeah, no, honestly, yeah. So when the final buzzer sounds, obviously, you know, there uh, Georgia Tech had already won the earlier game, so everybody knew the matchup. Just, um, yeah, man, it, it's f- so funny to think like you look back and it's like this felt like they won the championship, but they actually did have to win one more. But just uh. It, 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 the fact that it was Duke was so big because, like, you know, you still had kind of the scars of the uh, Leitner buzzer beater, and obviously, you know, winning in '99 it helped. But just um, to kind of be able to prove it wasn't a fluke and to just kind of take it to him, and it felt like almost like if you're a Duke fan after this game, you're you're feeling gutted, right? Like this is one that really got away. Whereas in '99, at least UConn really kind of deserved to, you know, they. they it was a much closer game. It, it, it didn't quite feel as much like Duke could really let it slip away so much. Exactly. And I think at this time, uh, UConn fans actually thought, like, they legitimately had the better program. They were getting just as good of players as Duke was. They won uh, the championship in, in 99 over them. Uh, they were consistently uh, in the top 15 ranked, uh, even ahead of Duke in a lot of these years. So I think it, at that point, like, we really thought that it was going to be just, like, a rivalry for many, many years. Unfortunately, it didn't pan out that way. But it, at this point, everybody just thought that was going to be, like, it was almost going to be, like, uh, a North Carolina Duke rivalry, even though we, they wouldn't see each other every year, uh, obviously. But uh, I just remember getting on the, the plane at Bradley to go down to San Antonio, and there was just all these 30 and 40-somethings that had graduated in the, in the 90s going on something of a bachelor party and it was just a rowdy rowdy flight down to san antonio there were a lot of uh duck 
fluke sharks uh, going on. I'm sure you can figure out what that means. <laughs> nice. But, uh, it was it was just a rowdy time, a rowdy rowdy plane ride down there. And uh, at that point, it was just we thought it was just the beginning of a very very long long standing rivalry, and hopefully. Well, the nice thing is that it's kind of one of those like slow burning rivalries where like it doesn't really matter that they haven't played very many more times since because like those handful of meetings have for the most part been very, very significant. Like the Leitner win was a huge, huge deal. The 99 championship that left a scar for for Duke for sure. This game left a scar. So if UConn and Duke ever do play, you know, play a big game in the Final Four again, though it doesn't matter that it'll have been twenty, you know, fifteen or twenty years or whatever it'll be at that point. Those these highlights, these are these are the highlights they're gonna play. And anybody who's a fan of both programs will just be like, "Yep, oh yeah, here we go." <laughs> so that's um, you know, kind of kind of nice to at least. Uh, have that sort of, uh, you know, long-term historical thing going. Um, so for this game, you did not watch this live, obviously, like on TV. So when you watched the game, like the broadcast, what stood out to you now that uh, you kind of had a chance to sort of see it from the, the TV perspective? Um, in, in terms of players on the floor, uh, it, it's funny, like I, I immediately was drawn to what Talik Brown was doing. We haven't really talked about him yet. He was the senior the senior point guard, and he only had four points in this game, but uh, he was just on the floor the whole game, and he provided that, that leadership that they needed, and he had really been through everything with, uh, with that program and with Calhoun. I remember uh, even that year, uh, fans kind of wanted Marcus Williams early in the year, because Marcus Williams had a couple uh, flashy passes. He was an L.A. guy. He was the high, highly touted freshman. He was something new, and people were kind of sick of, of Talik at that point. And uh, it, was, it, was a, it was a December game against a mid-major or something like that, but Marcus Williams looked like a world beater. And I remember talking with Talik after that uh, December game, and you would have thought uh, Talik's dog died or something. I mean, he, he felt like Calhoun was losing faith in him, the fan base was losing faith in him. Uh, his world was just starting to crash in around him, but... He eventually responded brilliantly that season, and he gave the team tremendous leadership. He didn't, he, he was another guy like Boone. He was not he was not going to score twelve points a game, but he scored the first points of this game here on a putback. He had great energy throughout this whole game. Uh, but overall, I think Talik was just frustrating for a lot of fans. You saw the emotion he had when he hit the shot from basically half court against Pitt in the two thousand two Big East title game. That's that's what kind of put him on the map with UConn fans. But overall, he was kind of a frustrating player. And Calhoun wrote him really hard, but almost always tweak, always uh, eventually responded. And he wound up being a champion here, starting point guard on what I consider to be the best UConn team ever. Yeah, no, he, he it, it, I'm, I'm, I think it's really good that he had this moment. You're right, he played 35 minutes. The, the stat sheet isn't very impressive. He did have seven turnovers, the four points, the three fouls. Um, you know, three rebounds, three assists. So it's not, wasn't a great performance, but maybe it was a very important performance just because he, he was able to stick with it. Defensively, he was pretty solid. And, um, you know, they, they don't get there without him. I mean, you know, Williams does not play in this game. So, I mean, this is, a, you know, kind of his show throughout. And, you know, he, you know, I, I won't say that he, I'll just say that he, he came, he, he gave the team what they, what they needed to manage to pull this out. 
Um, one thing that stood out to me, so when I was watching this game, so I don't have very much experience with this team. Like I said, it's kind of predated my UConn fandom. I didn't really become a UConn guy until I was a freshman, which wasn't until the 2008-2009 Final Four team. So um, this team, I know mostly by reputation. I know because of the NBA guys, because of the championship. And I know that um, Okafor and Ben Gordon were the guys. They were the ones who went number two and three in the draft, and they were sort of the, the ones who, at least for somebody like me who is kind of looking back, to me it's just like, oh yeah, those guys were those were the dudes. And watching this game, I expected Ben Gordon to be more uh, eye-popping. And in this game, like it felt like he was quiet. And then you look at the, the, the box score, and you see that, oh, actually he had 18 points. He was, uh, you know, uh, 7 for 8 from the free throw line, so he's the only guy who's really making the free throws. And, um, yeah, like... <laughs> He, 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 you know, the efficiency wasn't that great, but, you know, he, he came through and, you know, after the fact, you're like, oh yeah, you know, you look at all these runs, he's a part of all of them. He's coming up with baskets and free throws when they need them. And, you know, Ben, obviously we know Ben has had, uh, you know, a little bit of a, you know, a tough time over the past 15 years. You know, he's been, you know, public, he's had some public battles with uh, mental health, but this guy is, he was such a great player and, you know, watching the game, I expected a little bit more from him. And then you actually look closer and it's like, no, he, he, he gave you what you needed. Yeah. I mean, Ben, that, like you said, like, you know, he would, he would have quiet games where he'd score 20 points, but there were also the games where he just, he would be eye popping. Like every single time he went to, uh, to the Madison Square Garden, uh, we'd have to run from the Madison Square Gordon headlines in the, in the Daily Campus. He was he was phenomenal uh, at MSG, and uh, he, he definitely had those games throughout the year where he was just eye popping. There was one sequence in this game I can't remember when it was, but uh, Billy Packer just like jumped out of his seat when Gordon got a rebound. He just skied. I remember Calhoun always used to talk about Ben Gordon's uh, his legs. He just had like the biggest legs legs going, and he just had tremendous ups. And I think he actually, uh, Ben Gordon actually referenced it in that, that piece you were uh, describing that came out last month. Uh, ben Gordon's only 5'10". He's listed as 6'1". But he, he just had the strongest legs ever. He was able to rise on those three-point shots, able to rise on getting rebounds. Uh, he was just a terrific player. So a couple of things. Uh, actually, anything else stand out to you? Just uh, anything that kind of uh, you know, popped out um, when you were watching the broadcast? Uh, as, as far as the bar broadcast goes, it was kind of the, the last days of Billy Packer. You're probably too young to remember. Just Billy Packer had a stranglehold on basically whatever he said went when it came to college basketball, and nobody really really liked him at the time. But this is this is like the last the last days of that. And uh, Jim Nance, who I think is terrific, he kind of he screws up towards the end. I think he calls Josh Boone Jim Boone or something like that. But other than that, the broadcast. Because uh, it was pretty clean. Yeah, I, the, the CBS people always do a good job. A um, couple, a couple things I noticed. Uh, there was a point uh, in the first half where during Duke's run, they have this fast break, and Rashad Anderson kind of gets caught in no man's land, and he basically just kind of lets them blow right past him. He doesn't attempt to take a charge or do really much of anything. And then Calhoun just immediately calls timeout, just runs right out onto the court, and just gets right in his face and just, just just rips him a new one. And, uh, I mean, that's like classic Calhoun, but it was kind of funny just to see, like, it's like, yo, yeah, final four. Like, you know, we're in like a, the Alamo dome, like a million people are here. Don't care. Just going to let everybody know how much you sucked right there. And, um, 
you know, that was, that, I don't know, that, that just kind of cracked me up because, like, you know, Calhoun's usually good for one or two of those a game, and it was kind of funny to see just how dramatic it was right then. Oh, definitely. I mean, uh, Rashad got that, got that a lot. He wasn't exactly a lockdown defender, but uh, it, this, is, this is before Hilton Armstrong played a lot. So I think Hilton definitely took the mantle of uh, half-court stare-downs from Rashad in the, in the coming years. Yeah, no, definitely. Uh, and one more, one more for me. So the um, I don't know what it is about UConn and Duke, but it seemed like they had a stretch where every time they played, they had two guys who used to be high school teammates who wound up facing off in a big game. So in the '99 uh, final, it was uh, Ricky Moore and Will Avery who had like grew up, grew up in the same town and like played like, street ball together since they were like five. Um, and this one, Luol Deng and Charlie Villanueva, turns out were former high school teammates too at Blair Academy. So there you go again. You got you know two. They're they're both freshmen at the time, I think. So you got these two guys kind of uh, one year removed from being teammates, and now they're trying to you know go at it in the final four, which is I don't know. I I I've, I'm sure that happens probably more often than you expect, but it was kind of notable that it happened two times in a row in these Duke you know UConn final four games. Definitely. I mean, when you're recruiting at that level, that's going to happen a lot with those those big time schools. But uh, and at this point, they were all recruiting the same type of uh, player. So yeah, so let's move on to favorite sequences then. So I I've got a couple. I'm sure you'll agree with uh, you know most of them. So uh, you know, actually, why don't you just go first? What what was your favorite kind of a uh, play or sequence of plays in this one? Uh, definitely down the stretch when Calhoun called that timeout uh, to tell him to start pounding with Okafor again. Five uh, ten left. Uh, they started to get away from it a little bit offensively, and right away is when they they targeted Sheldon Williams, uh, and that's when he got fouled out. It was just again as we talked about earlier, great co- coaching by Calhoun uh, for him to just go right right back to it. And I mean Duke knew it was coming too. That's the thing. Like they could have, they didn't have the bodies to do it, but they could have double teamed them and done a little more on that end. But uh, that just never happened. Yeah, so that was definitely a huge one. Just kind of that that like set up the final run that allowed UConn to win, which uh, we'll get to I guess in a, again in a second. My my big one, uh, my first one was the the eight to nothing run that UConn had early, and uh, particularly when Charlie Villanueva scored those five quick points on the three, and then the uh, really nice uh, like cross course cross court pass and. Uh, basket that he hit you know that 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 happened around the 14 minute mark in the first half and you know this was with Okafor on the bench so you're like man like UConn subs are doing this to Duke like is what kind of a monster team are we dealing with here yeah I mean kind of thought at that point Villanueva would factor into the game a lot more I don't think he played much in the second half at all I don't really remember him making any plays in the second half but uh yeah that put them up I think the three put them up 13 to four yeah, he was just he was running the floor so well at that point. Uh, it's funny when he came to UConn that year. Uh, like I said before, like everybody had high expectations for him to be the number one freshman. Everybody thought he would start. Everybody thought he would. Uh, he, uh, there was like a lot of buzz. As crazy as this sounds at the time, I mean LeBron was only one year into the NBA. I think they were basically the same age. So I mean, people thought like Villanueva's court vision. People. I thought he was going to be basically LeBron. That sounds ridiculous now, but at the time, people people were had a rocky year. Calhoun had him in his doghouse throughout much of the year, so it was it was nice to see him hit that three. It was nice to see him running the floor like that. He had he had tremendous court vision during those years, and uh, 
that, that run kind of set them up okay. Jeez, people were actually comparing Charlie Villanueva to <laughs> to LeBron James. Is that is that are you serious? That's that's a th- that was a thing. That happened. I mean, this is almost twenty years ago now. So. Oh my God! I mean, that's a we need to get old takes exposed on that. It's a good thing that Twitter wasn't a thing at that point, or else, man, that would be that would be wild. To just go dig up some old like some super old boneyard posts or something. Just be like, yeah, you know, this guy Charlie Villanueva totally gonna be LeBron James. <laughs> Like, yeah. So anyway, next um, next thing I got is the uh, so when UConn makes their big push in the second half when they're trailing fifty nine fifty and then Okafor just takes over and uh, and he and Gordon kind of lead that eight to nothing run to kind of make it a one point game again because you know at that point like if they don't do that there's no guarantee that they have time to pull off the comeback they do you know if they're down fifteen with five minutes left I mean you know that now you're in big trouble so that was important just to kind of get it back to square one and then when duke's next run does come it's not the game you know it doesn't cost him the game exactly and a big key here was uh just all season long like uconn was was an excellent defensive team i mean the the eyeballs pop when gordon's raining down these threes and okafor had a lot of thunderous dunks uh, throughout the year, particularly at Gamble. I just remember him, it seemed like he was going to rip down the, the backboard on a few of those points at Gamble with the crowd going nuts. But uh, defensively, this team was just absolutely outstanding. On the perimeter, uh, Gordon was an underrated defender. Uh, Rashad wasn't exactly, but uh, Denim Brown was a decent defender. And then there was Okafor, of course, in the middle, and Boone was uh, a tremendous as well. So just the, the defensive power in this game, you can see it by the final score here, uh, that, that was that was something to note. And obviously, I mean, you know, you're, you're talking about the best sequence. There's really only one, at the end of the day, there's one answer, and it's the end. With that, like, the run that they put on, I guess it would have been, what, a 12 to nothing run? Because, they, yeah, they were down, the six, they had 67, they ended up with 679 before Duke finally scored that late uh, three-pointer. I mean, that just, that whole sequence is unbelievable. Like, like I said before, when I was watching the game, if I didn't know that they won that game, I think their their goose is cooked. And then just they just claw back, and at a certain point, by the time Okafor hits that basket to take the lead, now UConn just feels inevitable. It's like like friggin' Thanos has decided to quit playing with his food, and is just like, all right, you know what? I'm gonna snap and make this team disappear. And that's pretty much what Okafor did to Duke. Exactly. He closed it out as he should have. He was the he was the face of that team. Uh, ben Gordon led the team in scoring that year, but Omeka um, was obviously obviously the key guy on that team, and it, it wound up perfectly with him scoring that bucket, and then him scoring the, the game-winning free, the free throw that put them uh, up four as well. And uh, another s- sequence during that point was uh, 11 seconds left when Rashad stepped to the line. He was just a sophomore, and as you said, Calhoun kind of screamed in his face earlier in the game, but... When he went to the line, there was just no doubt that he was going to hit those. He was just he was just stone cold. He was he was balls throughout that season. He was balls throughout his whole UConn career, and uh, he just knew he was going to knock those down. He had yeah, he was a perfect five for five from the line, and he had three huge three pointers too, including one in the big uh, push at the end. Just uh, yeah, I mean he was. Uh, yeah, like you said, I guess a sophomore. So you know that was a it was some big plays for an underclassman to make. Uh, to I mean, not win a national championship, but you know, more or less, you know, kind of give them the the push they needed. Yeah, I mean, him and uh, Rashad and Denim Brown kind of had something like a rivalry going. It was they were they were friends, obviously, and they were they were nice to each other. But 
it was kind of like who could outdo who, and Rashad was the, the hot guy that could just like knock down any three-pointer. Once he got hot, there was no stopping him, and Denham was a little more consistent, and then uh, they kind of had differing careers, I would say, in the end, Denham had the better career, but, but here, I think Rashad really shined. So um, let's go through some of the stats, uh, some of the big ones that kind of stood out. Um, we we kind of covered it already, but both teams were horrible from the free throw line. Uh, UConn was only 21 for 32 for the game, and uh, Duke was uh, 14 for 23. I mean, you know, they're both basically like right around 60, 65%. I mean, th- this is the national semifinal. Uh, you know, that's, that's pretty bad. Um, it's kind of remarkable that it was that poor for both sides. Yeah, it's almost like the... Uh... Yeah, I guess so. It's funny. I was just the other day. I was recording the episode with uh, Tim Fontenot about the 2014 final, and it was like the opposite. UConn literally hit all of their free throws, and you know that that was probably the best free throw shooting UConn team ever. This one, you know, there was a point in the broadcast. I think they said like one of the assistant coaches would like keep track of all of UConn's free throws in practice. They they took like twenty thousand in practice over the course of the season, and as a team, they made eighty percent or something. But then in games they couldn't make their freaking shots and like they, they ended up shooting like sixty five percent for the season or whatever. So I mean in this game, I mean I guess UConn kind of was on brand. They they hit about as many as they usually did, but you know, that's kind of living dangerously, especially against a team like Duke, who has, you know, JJ Reddick only shooting free four three throws in this game is criminal. Like I, they that's another thing. Like they he should have been getting to the line a lot more or at least, you know, having the opportunity to at the end. Yeah, as great as this UConn team was, free throw shooting was not their uh, specialty, and that was highlighted by by Emeka, obviously. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, okay, a couple other things that kind of stood out. So Emeka Okafor finishes with 18 points, and 17 of those points come with, like, in the last 13 minutes of the game. So he completely takes over. Very efficient. Uh, he is 7 for 9 from the field, and... Um, you know, collectively, UConn did pretty good. They uh, they were uh, 50% from the field the whole game and, um, you know, over 50, 54% from three-pointers. They uh, hit 6 of 11, which, uh, you know, watching the game, it didn't feel like they really attempted that many, but they, they, they hit enough of them, so it made a difference. Uh, Duke, on the other hand, and again, this is a team with J.J. Redick, 6 for 22 from, free, uh, from three-point land. Um, that was pretty unexpected. I, I don't know if... Did you when you were watching it? Did you kind of expect that from them? Um, I mean, you, like I said before, UConn's defense was phenomenal, and nothing really surprised me if the other team wasn't hitting their baskets. And and also, I mean, uh, JJ wasn't exactly he wasn't he was good, but he wasn't he wasn't at that level where he would eventually get to even in, in his Duke career. So it wasn't it actually wasn't too surprising that they were kind of rocky from the field. Yeah, Duke, uh, they do a pretty good job of uh, spreading the offense around. They have five guys in double figures. Um, Luol Deng leads them with 16 points. He has 12 rebounds, so he was uh, he was pretty good. Uh, five offensive rebounds, too. Uh, pretty efficient, you know, 46% from the field and 54. Uh, oops, sorry, that's the two-pointers. Uh, he's one for four from three, so not, not as great from three-pointers, but, you know, he had a good game. Uh, Duhan and Redick both finished with 15 uh, Daniel Ewing, 11 points. Uh, Shav Randolph had uh, 13 points in only 14 minutes. So, you know, if he could, if he stays out of foul trouble, I mean, he could have been a real problem. Um, and then, uh, yeah, Sheldon Williams was the biggest disappointment. He was one for nine. He had four points, played 19 minutes. I mean, that's killer. You know, that's that was one of their guys, too. So Daniel Ewing, he kind of, he, he did show up in this game. He's kind of one of those forgotten Duke players. 
and he actually was, uh, he had a cup of coffee in the NBA as well. I think he played for the Clippers, but he came up pretty big in this game. And, uh, but Duke needed all their starters to put up the uh, 10 points or close to it, and it just never happened for him. No, it did not. Uh, broadcast beefs. Do we have any uh, beefs with the announcers? Or We touched a lot on it a little bit, but anything uh, kind of stand out to you, good or bad? Uh, nothing horrible. Uh, Billy Packer wasn't as bad as <laughs> I thought he could be. He, he made some decent points throughout the game, and Nance had that screw up at the end, but overall I thought it was pretty clean. I, I agree, but there was one thing that stood out to me. Uh, Billy Packer, after the uh, Okafor second foul, he's just like, you know, that's a legitimate foul. You know, he did something with the body, and I'm looking at the replay. I'm just like, what is he talking about? Like, how is, like, I can imagine, okay, I can maybe see a scenario where you could say, well, all right, I don't know, maybe, you know, the ref saw something. But to call that a legitimate foul, it's like his, his arms were straight up. He basically was standing still and, uh, you know, just, I don't know. That that was like to have that strong a take on that call going the other way. Eh, I don't know. That that kind of rubbed me the wrong way. Um, there was one one other thing I thought was a little weird uh, at halftime. Uh, Bonnie Bernstein interviewed Duke assistant Chris Collins. Where is Coach K? I I can't remember ever seeing that happen where the sideline reporter interviews an assistant for at halftime. Like, did that strike you as odd at all, or did you notice that? Yeah, it was, it was a little bizarre. Sure, it, I, I don't think halftime interviews with the head coach were that prevalent at that time. I can't remember totally. The one thing I remember from Bonnie Bernstein during that era was her interviewing uh, Roy Williams when he was still in Kansas, and him uh, him blowing up at her after a game. Him eventually going to North Carolina, like she she suggested. But uh, during that time, I, that was post game. But I can't remember uh, if they, they had uh, regularly uh, scheduled coach interviews during the half. Well, maybe, yeah, maybe I'm just kind of uh, projecting my own expectations because I, I can't recall recently ever seeing that happen. So I don't know. I saw that. Ha- I saw that. And I was just like, hold on a second. Who's this guy? Chris Collins? What, what do we care what this guy has to say? <laughs> I don't know. That was a, that was a little odd. Uh, anything else uh, on the broadcast? Uh, no, other than that, I mean, I, I thought it was clean overall. Uh like you say, Billy Packer was prone to screw-ups at that point. Uh, he he was, uh, I wouldn't say that he was anti-UConn at this point, because uh, early in the year, they were going back and forth. St. Joe's had a heck of a year that year, and uh, he was he was saying throughout the season that they didn't even deserve to be in the top ten, I think. And he Saint, was just ripping St. Joe's? Basically being a mid-major and being thought of as a, as a highly-class team. But on the other end of the spectrum, uh, everybody thought he was pro Duke, like uh, like Dickie V at the time, and every you, you thought all the announcers were pro Duke in every way. So that wasn't exactly surprising either. Maybe he got a, uh, a foul went against Duke when it should have. Well, I mean, to be fair, everybody's been pro Duke since the pretty much since the Leitner days. But yeah, that's a wait. He really said that uh, he didn't think St. Joe's deserved to be in the top ten. It was a running narrative during that year. I don't know if it was exactly the top ten, but he just he kept harping on that they were vastly overrated. That's outrageous. <laughs> that St. Joe's team was awesome. I mean, I guess they didn't quite live up to expectations in the tournament, but like, I mean, I don't know. Compare that to this year. I mean, Dayton was 
dominant this year. And you didn't hear anybody saying anything like that about them. I mean, everybody was like, oh, yeah, no, they got like the best player in the country. They are going to probably, you know, be a one seed. Everyone's super excited to see what they can do. Obviously, you know, quarantine, coronavirus. So that all kind of that's really tough for them. But yeah, like, I don't know, like did maybe mid majors, maybe they just didn't get as much respect back then. Because I guess like, I don't know, Gonzaga was still kind of a novelty at that point. You know, I don't know. There hadn't been that many uh, mid-major Cinderella's like there have been with Butler and uh, VCU in the years that followed. But man, that's a that's yeah, a tough take. I think everything back then was a little more. Uh, all the major programs got a little more respect, and everything was a little bit uh, heavyweight heavy. If that makes any sense. I guess there, so. There weren't. As, it didn't seem like there was many upsets back then. Uh, teams making runs at the Final Four like that didn't happen until a few years later. So maybe maybe that had something to do with it. Uh, also, Billy Packer was uh, uh, extremely old school, even when he was probably 25 years old. So that was just the way he was. Well, I guess so. All right. Well, uh, Matt, let's uh, wrap this up. Um, I feel like this question has a pretty obvious answer for this one. Who was the top dog from this game, would you say? Uh, without a doubt, you have to go with a Mecca. I mean, a Mecca was the heart and soul of that team when it came down to it on both ends of the floor, and he, he scored the, the game-winning bucket. He scored, had the free throw at the end. He had the big defensive stops. As soon as they took him out of the game in the first half, it was a totally different game. If he wasn't in foul trouble throughout the whole game, who knows, maybe UConn would have ran away with this thing in a blowout, but it, it absolutely was a mecca. Yeah, that's, uh, I think you're. it's pretty hard to argue with that. I mean, when he's off the floor, Duke was... You know, it was a one game, and then when he, when he came back, it was a totally different story. And, you know, there's no way they win the game down the stretch without him. Those last play, that last play where he uh, gets the tip from Boone on his miss, steals it from Deng, and just goes up and puts gives them the lead. That's like, that's like an iconic play. Like, that's the sort of winning play that great players make. And for him to come through like that was just so, it was really remarkable. So... Yeah, I don't think there's any need to. I had I wrote down Josh Boone too, just as kind of a like a you know the runner up, just because he was just so good in this game and you know all the underrated ways. But yeah, this was Okafor's shining moment and you know really kind of the the pinnacle of his career. Even if obviously the next game was the one he actually became a champion. Absolutely, this game and the championship game where he was again uh, phenomenal. That kind of propelled him into like the top five of the draft. If not, I mean, there was an argument at the time that uh, he should have gone ahead of Dwight Howard, number one in that year's draft. But uh, that kind of put him on the map in, in terms of uh, in terms of where he's going to land in the draft because uh, it also was a kind of a uh, rivalry between him and Ben at that time on who was going to get drafted higher, and it, it, it wound up back at number two and uh, Ben number three. Yeah, I think uh, if you both land in the top three, I mean, I guess you can kind of, uh, you know, quibble about the, oh, yeah, I got drafted ahead of you. But when you're both top three picks, that's, I mean, that's pretty unusual. We haven't seen too many college basketball teams produce two top three picks in the same draft in the same year. Like, I'm sure I I, I don't have the the numbers in front of me, but if it has ever happened again or before, it's it's very very rare and it's very impressive. So it was good. It kind of just showed you what kind of team they had. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know what? You know, you got to start somewhere. So first year back in the Big East, hopefully they'll make some noise. And then who knows, maybe they can start getting the Kentucky guys back. And who knows? Another another whole thing is like, 
UConn, the quality of their recruits, you know, definitely did start to fall off after the one and done era began. Um, Cause I don't know for whatever, like, I think you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe Andre Drummond is still the only one and done they've ever had, like for the NBA. So, you know, maybe I mean, we'll see like if the NBA and the NCAA kind of change things up and it starts to be a, you have to stay in college for two years at least or three years at least like baseball type thing. I mean, that maybe who knows what, how, what kind of impact that could be, but I feel like that would be the sort of change that would set UConn up for some real success since they've always been more of a program focused team and not like, you know, what Kentucky's become with just their, you know, revolving door of NBA guys. Right. And I remember during this time period, like, Two oh three oh four, uh, we would always have arguments on the daily campus, and about my friends at school just what kind of players they should recruit. Like even then, we didn't think that they should be competing with Duke or North Carolina for for the blue chip guys. Just the, the get a bunch of those guys on the, the second tier and hope that a few of them pan out. But during this during this era, you're right. Like they were going after the top top end guys, and I think it's smart to go after the top end guys maybe one or two of those guys and then sprinkle it in with a, a couple of those tier two guys. And I think that should be the, uh, the focus going forward. And I think they'll be able to do that now that they're playing uh, at the garden more consistently. No, absolutely. All right, Matt. Well, let's wrap this up. Uh, thanks so much for coming on today. Um, really appreciate you taking the time. This was a, a good time and a great game. Uh, if um, anybody, do you want anything you want to plug while you, while we have you here, like social media or just whatever it is you, you've, uh, you're up to these days? Uh, sure. I'm working for uh, Kikina Media right now. We run a bunch of uh, sports betting websites. Um, other than that, uh, check it out. Play, play Colorado, play Massachusetts, play CA, uh, play Michigan. I'm overseeing a, couple, a bunch of sites for them, so uh, I'll be tweeting those out. Well, Matt, thanks so much for coming on. And uh, everybody, thanks so much for listening. Uh, We'll be back again next week. uh, And if you want to reach out, you can follow me on Twitter at Max Cerullo. That's M-A-C-C-E-R-U-L-L-O. My DMs are open. And uh, if you have any feedback, you can also hit me up uh, at my email, uh, which is yesuconpodcast at gmail.com. This podcast is now available on all major podcast distributors. So uh, Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, all that good stuff. And uh, yeah, uh, five-star reviews. Uh, We want them. Uh, We love to have them. And they help with the... uh, the help with the algorithm so you know the more five-star reviews we get the higher up the show appears on uh you know the the, the searches and stuff so anyway uh matt thanks again and uh, everybody thanks so much for listening we'll see you all next time Bye.